Well, hey, uh, we are in the second week of our Courageous Faith uh, series where we're studying the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, well, the first half of Daniel is fantastic. The second half is very confusing. But the first half is what we're going to be looking at through this series. And man, it is, it is, uh, it's like a movie script. And um, we're in Daniel chapter 2 today. Pastor Chad uh, preached on Daniel chapter 1. Basically, the context is there's a nation of Judah that God allows to be overcome and overtaken by Nebuchadnezzar in the empire of Babylon. Uh, and uh, I, I listened to a 20-hour podcast on the nation of Babylon, it, not for this week, but in the past. And basically, the nation of Babylon summed up, they are bad dudes. Like, they are not, this is not a happy thing for the nation of Judah. So they take all the influential men and women of the nation of Judah to Babylon to inculcate them, to teach them all the language, to wipe them of their names, wipe them of their identity, to basically take the cream of the crop and make them Babylonians. Well, Pastor Chad, uh, if you haven't heard the message from last week, it's really great, about putting a stake in the ground. They put a stake in the ground with their own personal holiness. So you can take my name, you can take my country, you're not going to take my faith. And they put a stake in the ground. And now we're going to look at how they played out, how this all played out publicly. Because if you have put a stake in the ground in your life uh, about your personal integrity and holiness before the Lord, it's going to come with some resistance in your life. And we see um, an opportunity here in chapter 2 where Daniel stood up, had courage, but ultimately his faith in God produced a benefit for not just him, but for everybody. So the principle that we're going to see from Daniel chapter 2 is this. Living according to the eternal kingdom, you are to live according to the eternal kingdom for everyone's sake. Okay? So before we get into the text, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you help us as we look at Daniel chapter 2? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, uh, through your spirit, uh, help us to understand how we are to live in our 21st century context, um, knowing the, the challenge, the call that you have given us um, in, our own, in our own life. So uh, help us, Lord, and, and I pray that each one of us, not only the words that I say, but the Holy Spirit, you, you draw into their own hearts applications and principles that they can, uh, that, that you're showing them just simply through the reading. So uh, help us uh, this morning where we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Daniel chapter 2, have your Bibles, you can turn there, or uh, it'll be on the screen. Starting, um, so this is, Daniel chapter 2 is a long chapter. We can't go through every verse, but we're going to go through the kind of the high points, and I'll summarize the rest. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. What the ancient historians, what was inscripted all throughout these uh, personal idols that he created, Nebuchadnezzar calls himself the king of kings. He's the king of kings, and he controls everything. 
The whole ancient world is under his hand. So what he says goes. So he calls in all of his court uh, uh, wise men. He's kind of enchanters, magicians. And he says, look, I had a dream. I want you to interpret it for me. They go, okay, let, tell us your dream. No, no. I, look, I know you guys blow a lot of smoke in here. But look, you're going to have to tell me what I dreamed and interpret the dream so I know it's authentic. And they, uh, these magicians say, uh, that's impossible. He says, okay, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you all. Well, we pick up the story in verse uh, 12. Because of this, because of their resistance, saying, hey, we, no one could do this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel, if you remember last week, uh, because of his success and his training, was raised up to be a court uh, advisor. Well, here comes the king, uh, the chief of the guard, come to kill Daniel and his friends. And Daniel goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, tell the king, set up a time for me, and I will go in, and I will tell him his dream, and I will give him the interpretation of his dream. And this was pretty bold, pretty courageous, because Daniel didn't know the dream yet. <laughs> he had no idea. So the, the chief goes, okay, deal. So that night, Daniel and his friends get together. They're like, okay, it's prayer time. <laughs> so they pray, and they, Lord, show, what, show us this dream. God actually shows, them, shows Daniel in the vision of the dream and the interpretation. And here's Daniel's response to God's kindness. We see in verse 20. It said, blessed be, the God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So here's Daniel. He goes into the Nebuchadnezzar right in front of the king of kings and tells him, hey, the one true God has revealed to me your dream. And here it is. Your dream is this. You imagine this huge, beautiful statue. And this statue is the head is made of gold, the, che- the, the arms and shoulders of silver, the chest of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of clay and iron. And in this dream, a stone which no human hand has cut comes flying out of the heavens and destroys this statue. And the statue is obliterated to dust. And then this rock that has come out of heaven grows into a giant mountain that goes on forever and ever. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, that's correct. <laughs> yes. Now, what does it mean? Daniel says this. Each, the, each uh, uh, material on this statue is representative of a world empire. And Nebuchadnezzar, your empire, the Babylonian empire, is the head. It's made of gold. And there will be subsequent empires throughout history that will be built and will conquer the world. But there's something greater, something more significant, something more powerful than these world empires. It's this thing that comes out of heaven and it obliterates the earthly kingdoms and and goes on forever and ever. Look at me, verse 44. Here's the sum, here's the hook of his interpretation. 
It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And we know since we have the New Testament that that rock, that stumbling stone, that cornerstone from heaven is Jesus Christ himself who comes to establish the kingdom of God and to put into place and in their place all the kingdoms of man. And that is what the vision and its interpretation from God given to Nebuchadnezzar almost 3,000 years ago said. Well, the question for us is, what do we do with this? Now, there are many people who try to interpret the, you know, the kingdoms and trying to understand when Christ will come again. Well, maybe, maybe if that was the intent of, uh, to know exactly when Christ is coming again, maybe there'd be more information. But what we do know is this, that God is teaching us something. He's telling us, even today, something about reality something about what is true, something about who he is. The major principle we can understand from this interpretation is this. All human kingdoms are temporary, but God's kingdom is eternal. All human kingdoms are temporary. All are on a timer that God has set. No matter what a king, what a government, what you or me want to do or could do, they are all on a timer. And when it's time to go, the kingdom goes. But God is an eternal king and he has inaugurated his kingdom even now. You see, a lot of us, the kingdom language is a little um, beyond us, right? Other than maybe like watching some BBC period dramas from England, like we don't really think about kings and kingdoms. Well, it's funny because the major message of the gospel that Jesus brought was based on this kingdom language. We see in Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist, who was there to prepare the way of the Lord, says, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus picks up that very same message. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see twice in the the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus even himself said, when you pray, say, our father who is in heaven, blessed be your name, your kingdom come. You see, it's like we have blinders, like we're colorblind to this theme of the kingdom. And it is all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's something that we as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to understand that God's not just calling us to have a personal relationship with him. He is calling us to join his kingdom. He's calling us to live according to his kingdom and to change and renovate our hearts in order not just to be, it's not just one-on-one with me and God, but between me and God with fellow citizens of the eternal kingdom. Christ is the perfect king and he is the head of the church, his body. So the church should be, not, it's not always, unfortunately, but should be the tangible expression of God's kingdom breaking in here on earth. And the citizens of that earthly kingdom are marked by a way of life according to the law of love we see in Scripture. The way we think about work, our sexuality, our money, politics, entertainment, world powers, all those things 
should be formed, if we're citizens of the eternal kingdom, by the word of God. Now, there are many people who claim allegiance to Christ, at least verbally. You know, in, in Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, this phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a very uh, kingdom oriented phrase. It's a political phrase. In the writing of this, of the book of Romans, all the coins said, Caesar is Lord. And everyone had to uh, profess allegiance to Caesar and everything about their life was controlled according to that allegiance. So my question is for you is this, where's your allegiance? How is your, your life formed? Is it a formed according to allegiance to Jesus Christ? Is he Lord? Is your life formed according to the law of love we find in Scripture? Or is your life formed more according to an earthly kingdom? Whether that's a political kingdom, whether that's a work-life kingdom, or maybe it's your own kingdom. Maybe you're Lord of your life. Well, I challenge you, I call you today to profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, to be part of his eternal kingdom, to forsake all others and come under his law of love because every other Lord will let you down, but Jesus never will, but he'll cause you to change. So if you have not professed your allegiance to Christ, today's the day to do that. We'd love to, we'd love to guide you through that into the, the service or in the prayer cove. Well, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord have claimed allegiance in Christ. What are we to do with this teaching in Daniel? What are we to do as citizens of the eternal kingdom as we are sojourners of the earthly kingdom? Well, you th I think this is where uh, Daniel is an excellent example of how we're to understand how to be citizens of the eternal kingdom while we're citizens of the earthly kingdom. You see, if I was Daniel and I was in a prominent position, I'd be thinking, what can I do to just like mess stuff up in Babylon? <laughs> what can I do to start some guerrilla warfare or do maybe I'll poison Nebuchadnezzar so that we can get back to our nation, we can get back to our country, back to where we are from? Well, the, maybe Daniel and his friends would have done that except for the prophet Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He prophesied during this time of Daniel. And, the, and God gave Jeremiah inspiration and told him to write a letter and send it to the exiles in Babylon. And as the exiles were receiving this letter, I can imagine they were wringing their hands. Here we go. This is when we're going to get back. This is the guerrilla warfare plan. Rather, we see something very different. Look with me on the screen, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is the letter from God by the pen of Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives from your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multi multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. And where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
See, God told Daniel, yes, you're to put a stake in the ground, your own personal morality, but you're to live and seek the welfare of the city. You're to seek the welfare of wicked Babylon. They did like human sacrifices. You're supposed to pray for Babylon. It's, for me, it's startling. But I think as 21st century, if you're a Christian, in the 21st century, I think it begins to draw out some um, important heart postures that we should have in our lives, especially toward our earthly kingdom that we find ourselves in. You see, if you call yourselves a follower of Jesus, your job is to seek the welfare of the earthly kingdom. And you do that by living according to the law of the eternal kingdom. You see, you are to live according to the eternal kingdom for the good of the earthly kingdom. You see, you, wherever you are, you see, once you're a follower of Jesus and you leave this place, we disperse all throughout the Northeast Ohio in different contexts, different environments. Maybe they allow you to live your faith very smoothly. Maybe most, not so smoothly. But you are sent out as ambassadors, as citizens of Jesus's eternal kingdom. And part of your job and part of your call is wherever you find yourself, you are going to be a fountain of good for all those around you, even if they don't know and love Jesus. Right, think about our work life. Think about your work life. Can you imagine what would happen if a citizen of the eternal kingdom really took seriously the book of Colossians? that says, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not men. Like imagine if all of us went to our workplaces and we worked with our hearts at our vocation as if we're, look, we're working for Jesus Christ and not some surly boss that's never happy. What do you think your neighborhood and my neighborhood would look like if we took seriously the book of Philippians? It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine what your neighborhood would look like? Can you like, imagine if your neighbor and you thought of your other neighbor's interests along with his? Imagine how you would respond differently if you took Philippians, if I took Philippians seriously, and I got to think, okay, it's not just my needs, but I got to consider my neighbor's needs just as my own, right? Maybe we wouldn't have those like rusted out 55 Chevy parked on the curb for two years. I don't know. <clears throat> think about the impact that our social services and foster care system would have if we took James seriously that says religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We're actually uh, dedicating a little girl uh, that's an orphan, was an orphan in China. We're doing that next service. Imagine if like every week we had those. 
what would our earthly kingdom be like if Christians truly lived according to the law of love? I tell you one thing, they might not like what we say about certain things uh, in our belief system, but they'll love us in their neighborhood. They'll, they'll want to hire us. They'll want us in their school districts. They'll want us on their school boards. Ball's in our court. It's our responsibility. Imagine what our nation would be like when we think about equality and harmony. See, we as a country have, exp have experienced great racial and ethnic discord for all the history of our country. As Tahanisi Coates says, it is heritage. But imagine if people who claim allegiance to Christ would take seriously the book of Ephesians that says, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There should be no dividing wall of hostility for those who call Jesus Lord. What would our country be like if those people who claim Jesus said, no, I am putting a stake in the ground in my personal holiness. I will not like, allow anyone to say things that is against the central doctrine of the image of God that all people are created according to the image of God and are deserving of full respect and honor? What would it be like if we stuck a stake in the ground and we said, mm -mm, not on my watch? I tell you what would happen, our country would get better. When people live in God's eternal kingdom, the earthly kingdom gets the benefits. And that's what it means to live a life of love. You know, I think of two stories throughout history that kind of encapsulate a group of people who said, no, I am going to live according to a citizen of the eternal kingdom. And it had far-reaching implications. I think the first is in the, uh, t the 9th through the 11th century in Western Europe. This was a season of uh, great hypocrisy in the church. Many Christian leaders and officials were not living according at all, according to the, the teachings of the Bible, and government leaders as well. But there were groups of men and women, Christian men and women, who said, look, we, we're going to leave these cities, we're going to leave these institutions, and we're going to set up our own thing. And we're going to uh, kind of grow food for ourselves, we're going to make our own tools, and our lives are going to be marked by work and prayer and Bible study. Well, we see these groups, we, we, we later on call them monasteries, come together and they could, these men and women commit themselves to work, to prayer, and to Bible study. And it's funny, as historians uh, see that throughout Western Europe, there's always a monastery in the middle of these great cities. So for a long time, people just assumed, oh, maybe they just moved in like bots of real estate. Actually, that's not what happened. If you do archaeological evidence, this is what they found that these men and women would start these little communes and they would work hard. They'd make the best shovel, right? Not for their own benefit, for the benefit of everyone else. They'd make the best bread, not for their own benefit, for the benefit of everyone else. They'd make their best, the best honey, the best meat or whatever, and all these things. So what would happen is these people in the city, they'd go out to the country 
and be like, hey, monks, uh, you know, can, I, can we trade? And they would buy and sell. And then they go back to the city. Well, the monks had the best of everything and people got tired of commuting and they just started building a city around these monasteries and they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually a city centered on strong economic industriousness was built because these men and women were like, look, we're going to live according to the citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven and we're going to work really hard for, for the benefit of everyone. Western Europe was changed forever because of that. And I think of another, a more recent example. Like I mentioned before, equality is a great value in our American culture. But our history uh, of, as a country is fraught with hypocrisy. And the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was a major benefit to our country because it put into law the idea that all people are created equal. Now, if you look at the civil rights leaders of that time, you will know that the arguments on equality are not based on some general idea or some general philosophy. No, the arguments were almost completely Christian arguments based on the doctrine of the image of God. I think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. It's an excellent example. It's a letter calling to the carpet white pastors in the South and saying, you're not being involved and engaged with the civil rights movement. And the reason that they were not, the reason he's, or the argument he's offering is not some general argument. It is a specifically Christian argument. He he says, um, uh, talking about the early church, in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicating to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils of infanticide and gladiatorial contests. You see, King was just doing what citizens of the eternal kingdom we're called to do, live out the faith in a public way for the benefit of us all. Unless we forget the one, the perfect example who gave everything he had while everyone else was, was still his enemies, he died on a cross, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. He took all of our sins on his shoulders, paid the penalty of our sins so that you and I could have our sins forgiven, be brought into the kingdom of God and be part of his kingdom forever. You see, this is just living a Christian life. This is just living with our eyes toward the eternal kingdom, with our hearts still for our brothers and sisters that who are yet to know Christ in our earthly kingdom. Well, what are some practical ways that we can live out the eternal kingdom here uh, as a sojourners, as, as, as uh, citizens of the earthly kingdom? Well, here's some thoughts. Maybe as I was talking, you, there's some uh, thoughts that you've come to mind. Or here's some thoughts that I've come up with. People, people with courageous faith, you need courageous faith in order to live this out. 
They pray for political leaders. We see that in Jeremiah 29. We see that all throughout the book of Daniel. And my question for you is this. When was the last time you prayed for someone that is a political official that you do not agree with? When was the last time you prayed for someone that are in politics that you do not agree with? Well, that's our charge. That's our call. It takes courageous faith. It might take some swallowing. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try. But that's our call. That's a challenge. Look, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces. And prayer is vital. Look, as citizens of the eternal kingdom, we don't simply just support or just castigate a political leader, we pray for them. The second thing, people with courageous faith never perfectly align with the political party. You see, Daniel, the story of Daniel, we understand that there's no earthly kingdom that perfectly represents the qualities of the eternal kingdom. So citizens of the eternal kingdom will not perfectly align with, the, with any earthly kingdom. So there must always, as citizens of the kingdom of God, there's always be places of tension in our hearts and in our engagement because no one's apart from God in Christ has it perfectly ironed out. If there's nothing of concern with the political platform you identify with, then maybe that party might be Lord of your life. The third thing. People with courageous faith have lives marked by peace. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people regularly that struggle with fear, especially with maybe the direction of our country. Well, um, we should have a heart for our country. Man, this is important. God has told us to seek the welfare of, of this place. But scripture has also told us to flee from temptation. And maybe some of us are just being tempted toward anxiety. Look, if you have a drinking problem, don't go have a burger in a bar. If you have an anxiety problem, you probably shouldn't have 24-7 news cycles on at home. So maybe a next step for you is to say, hey, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to stay off Twitter. But I'm going to buy a couple uh, worship CDs and fill my mind with, with songs of praise to the Lord. Maybe I'll download some teachings. We, got, we would be happy to connect you with great biblical teachers to kind of wash your mind with the truth that, look, every earthly kingdom will one day go away. But Christ is going to come again, and he's going to establish his eternal kingdom. So we shouldn't be afraid. We, should, we shouldn't be anxious because Christ's kingdom is coming. Next practical way of people uh, living, uh, people with courageous faith is this. People with courageous faith are both to be disciples and patriots. We are both to be disciples and patriots, but only in that order. We are called to be patriots of our country, but our patriotism must never arise above our devotion to God. And how we make sure that our patriotism doesn't rise above our devotion to God, is not to lower our patriotism. It's to raise our devotion to God. That's how we do it. And Pastor Chad, uh, between services, he had a great question. He goes, maybe we should ask him this. When was the last, or, or if someone followed you for 12 months, would, you think, would they think you were more of a disciple or a patriot? Very good question. Finally, fifth thing, is people with courageous faith invite people to the eternal kingdom. 
They invite them to be part of God's eternal kingdom. Jesus was clear. Look, we, I got a big old house. I've got a big kingdom. All are invited. He says, I don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So my question is, you, when was the last time you invited, to, invited someone to Christ's eternal kingdom? You know, we talk about the three circles. We talk about brokenness. Well, a lot of conversations can come up. Man, our, you know, decision with our country and dysfunction. Well, that could be a great segue. Well, you know what? There is brokenness in this world but you know what? I'm a follower of an eternal kingdom. There is no brokenness. There's no turning within. Our king is a perfect king, and he rose from the dead. You should be part. That's a great way to segue into a discussion about Christ. Well, hey, I know each one of you, I just want to say this. It's harder for you as a normal, everyday Christian to live out your faith than it is for me. And I recognize that because I work at a church, okay? You know, we don't have to, like, put out a memo for people to, like, you know, watch their language or anything, you know, at the workplace. So, man, I challenge you. Allow the Holy Spirit to be thinking, what are ways I can live out being a citizen of the eternal kingdom for the benefit of the earthly kingdom? Because, you know what, you probably have a better idea through the power of the Holy Spirit than I, even I have. So I encourage you to be thinking about how does this look like in your life? Because you have been put in the exact place God wants you in order to have the greatest impact for his kingdom. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, thank you that your son has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. He's died on the cross, rose again so that we can be part of his kingdom. And Lord, we long for him to come again. Oh Lord, come establish your kingdom, we pray. Lord, for first, establish it in our hearts. Lord, establish it in our workplaces, in our families. Lord, may we be bold and have courageous faith in order to invite, encourage people who don't know you into your kingdom and help us to be honorable citizens of that kingdom so that everyone around us will get a taste of the goodness of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.